Section 30 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 30. The Stalls of Barchester Cathedral by Montague Rhodes James, Part 1. This matter began, as far as I am concerned, with the reading of a notice in the obituary section of the Gentleman's Magazine for an early year in the 19th century. Quote, On February 26th, at his residence in the Cathedral Close of Barchester, the Venerable John Benwell Haynes, D.D., aged 57, Archdeacon of Sourbridge and Rector of Pickhill and Candley, he was of Blank College, Cambridge, and where, by talent and assiduity, he commanded the esteem of his seniors. When, at the usual time, he took his first degree, his name stood high in the list of wranglers. These academical honors procured for him, within a short time, a fellowship of his college. In the year 1873, he received holy orders, and was shortly afterwards presented to the perpetual curacy of Rankston sub Ash by his friend and patron, the late truly venerable Bishop of Lichfield. His speedy preferments, first to a prebend, and subsequently to the dignity of precentor in the Cathedral of Barchester, form an eloquent testimony to the respect in which he was held and to his eminent qualifications. He succeeded to the archdeaconry upon the sudden decease of Archdeacon Pulteney in 1810. His sermons, ever conformable to the principles of the religion and church which he adorned, displayed in no ordinary degree, without the least trace of enthusiasm, the refinement of the scholar united with the graces of the Christian. Free from sectarian violence, and informed by the spirit of the truest charity, they will long dwell in the memories of his hearers. Here a further omission. The productions of his pen include an able defense of episcopacy, which, though often perused by the author of this tribute to his memory, afford but one additional instance of the want of liberality and enterprise, which is a too common characteristic of the publishers of our generation." His published works are, indeed, confined to a spirited and elegant version of the Argonautica of Valerius Flaccus, a volume of Discourses upon the Several Events in the Life of Joshua, delivered in his cathedral, and a number of the charges which he pronounced at various visitations to the clergy of his archdeaconry. These are distinguished by etc., etc. The urbanity and hospitality of the subject of these lines will not readily be forgotten by those who enjoyed his acquaintance. His interest in the venerable and awful pile under whose hoary vault he was so punctual an attendant, and particularly in the musical portion of its rites, might be termed filial 
and formed a strong and delightful contrast to the polite indifference displayed by too many of our cathedral dignitaries at the present time. The final paragraph, after informing us that Dr. Haynes died a bachelor, says, quote, It might have been augured that an existence so placid and benevolent would have been terminated in a ripe old age by a dissolution equally gradual and calm. But how unsearchable are the workings of Providence! the peaceful and retired seclusion amid which the honored evening of dr haynes life was mellowing to its close was destined to be disturbed nay shattered by a tragedy as appalling as it was unexpected the morning of the twenty sixth of february but perhaps I shall do better to keep back the remainder of the narrative until I have told the circumstances which led up to it. These, as far as they are now accessible, I have derived from another source. I had read the obituary notice, which I have been quoting, quite by chance, along with a great many others of the same period. It had excited some little speculation in my mind, but beyond thinking that, if I ever had an opportunity of examining the local records of the period indicated, I would try to remember Dr. Haynes. I made no effort to pursue his case. Quite lately, I was cataloging the manuscripts in the library of the college to which he belonged. I had reached the end of the numbered volumes on the shelves, and I proceeded to ask the librarian whether there were any more books which he thought I ought to include in my description. "'I don't think there are,' he said. "'But we had better come and look at the manuscript class and make sure. Have you time to do that now?' "'I had time. We went to the library.' checked off the manuscripts, and, at the end of our survey, arrived at a shelf of which I had seen nothing. Its contents consisted, for the most part, of sermons, bundles of fragmentary papers, college exercises, Cyrus, an epic poem in several cantos, the product of a country clergyman's leisure, mathematical tracts by a deceased professor, and other similar material of a kind with which I am only too familiar. I took brief notes of these. Lastly, there was a tin box, which was pulled out and dusted. Its label, much faded, was thus inscribed, quote, Papers of the Venerable Archdeacon Haynes, bequeathed, in 1834, by his sister, Miss Letitia Haynes. I knew at once that the name was one which I had somewhere encountered and could very soon locate it. That must be the Archdeacon Haynes, who came to a very odd end at Barchester. I've read his obituary in the Gentleman's Magazine. May I take the box home? Do you know if there's anything interesting in it? The librarian was very willing that I should take the box and examine it at leisure. I never looked inside it myself, he said, but I've always been meaning to. 
I'm pretty sure that is the box which our old master once said ought never to have been accepted by the college. He said that to Martin years ago, and he said also that as long as he had control over the library, it should never be opened. Martin told me about it and said that he wanted terribly to know what was in it, but the master was librarian and always kept the box in the lodge, so there was no getting at it in his time. And when he died, it was taken away by mistake by his heirs and only returned a few years ago. I can't think why I haven't opened it, but as I have to go away from Cambridge this afternoon, you had better have first go at it. I think I can trust you not to publish anything undesirable in our catalogue. I took the box home and examined its contents, and thereafter consulted the librarian as to what should be done about publication, and since I have his leave to make a story out of it, provided I disguise the identity of the people concerned, I will try what can be done. The materials are, of course, mainly journals and letters. How much I shall quote and how much epitomize must be determined by considerations of space. The proper understanding of the situation has necessitated a little, not very arduous, research, which has been greatly facilitated by the excellent illustrations and text of the Barchester volume in Bell's Cathedral series. When you enter the choir of Barchester Cathedral now, you pass through a screen of metal and colored marbles, designed by Sir Gilbert Scott, and you find yourself in what I must call a very bare and odiously furnished place. The stalls are modern, without canopies. The places of the dignitaries and the names of the prebends have fortunately been allowed to survive, and are inscribed on small brass plates affixed to the stalls. The organ is in the triforium, and what is seen of the case is gothic. The re-redus and its surroundings are like every other. Careful engravings of a hundred years ago show a very different state of things. The organ is on a massive classical screen. The stalls are also classical and very massive. There is a baldacchino of wood over the altar, with urns upon its corners. Further east is a solid altar screen, classical in design, of wood, with a pediment in which is a triangle surrounded by rays, enclosing certain Hebrew letters in gold. Cherubs contemplate these. There is a pulpit with a great sounding board at the eastern end of the stalls on the north side, and there is a black and white marble pavement. Two ladies and a gentleman are admiring the general effect. From other sources I gather that the archdeacon's stall then, as now, was next to the bishop's throne at the southeastern end of the stalls. His house almost faces the western part of the church and is a fine red-brick building of William the Third's time. Here Dr. Haynes, 
already a mature man, took up his abode with his sister in the year 1810. The dignity had long been the object of his wishes, but his predecessor refused to depart until he had attained the age of ninety-two. About a week after he had held a modest festival in celebration of that ninety-second birthday, there came a morning, late in the year, when Dr. Haynes, hurrying cheerfully into his breakfast-room, rubbing his hands and humming a tune, was greeted and checked in his genial flow of spirits by the sight of his sister, seated, indeed, in her usual place behind the tea-urn, but bowed forward and sobbing unrestrainedly into her handkerchief. "'What, what is the matter?' "'What bad news?' he began. "'Oh, Johnny, you've not heard. "'The poor dear archdeacon.' "'The archdeacon, yes. "'What is it? Ill is he?' "'No, no, they found him on the staircase this morning. "'It's so shocking.' "'Is it possible? "'Dear, dear poor Pulteney, had there been any seizure?' They don't think so, and that is almost the worst thing about it. It seems to have been all the fault of that stupid maid of theirs, Jane. Dr. Haynes paused. I don't quite understand, Letitia. How was the maid at fault? Why, as far as I can make out, there was a stair-rod missing, and she never mentioned it, and the poor archdeacon set his foot quite on the edge of the step, you know how slippery that oak is, and it seems he must have fallen almost the whole flight and broken his neck. It is so sad for poor Miss Pulteney. Of course, they will get rid of the girl at once. I never liked her. Miss Haynes' grief resumed its sway, but eventually relaxed so far as to permit of her taking some breakfast. Not so her brother, who— after standing in silence before the window for some minutes, left the room, and did not appear again that morning. I need only add that the careless maidservant was dismissed forthwith, but that the missing stair-rod was very shortly afterwards found under the stair-carpet, an additional proof, if any were needed, of extreme stupidity and carelessness on her part. For a good many years, Dr. Haynes had been marked out by his ability, which seems to have been really considerable, as the likely successor of Archdeacon Pulteney, and no disappointment was in store for him. He was duly installed and entered with zeal upon the discharge of those functions which are appropriate to one in his position." A considerable space in his journals is occupied with exclamations upon the confusion in which Archdeacon Pulteney had left the business of his office and the documents appertaining to it. Dues upon Ringham and Barnswood have been uncollected for something like twelve years, and are largely irrecoverable. No visitation has been held for seven years. Four chancels are almost past mending. The persons deputized by the archdeacon have been nearly as incapable as himself. 
it was almost a matter for thankfulness that this state of things had not been permitted to continue and a letter from a friend confirms this view Quote, greek ho catacon it says in rather cruel allusion to the second epistle to the thessalonians is removed at last my poor friend upon what a scene of confusion you will be entering i give you my word that on the last occasion of my crossing his threshold there was no single paper that he could lay hands upon no syllable of mine that he could hear and no fact in connection with my business that he could remember but now thanks to a negligent maid and a loose stair carpet there is some prospect that necessary business will be transacted without a complete loss alike of voice and temper this letter was tucked into a pocket in the cover of one of the diaries there can be no doubt of the new archdeacon's zeal and enthusiasm Quote, Give me but time to reduce to some semblance of order the innumerable errors and complications with which I am confronted, and I shall gladly and sincerely join with the aged Israelite in the canticle, which too many, I fear, pronounce but with their lips. This reflection I find not in a diary, but a letter. The doctor's friends seem to have returned his correspondence to his surviving sister. He does not confine himself, however, to reflections. His investigation of the rights and duties of his office are very searching and businesslike, and there is a calculation in one place that a period of three years will just suffice to set the business of the archdeaconry upon a proper footing. The estimate appears to have been an exact one. For just three years he is occupied in reforms. But I look in vain at the end of that time for the promised nunc dimittis. He has now found a new sphere of activity. Hitherto his duties have precluded him from more than an occasional attendance at the cathedral services. Now he begins to take an interest in the fabric and the music. Upon his struggles with the organist, an old gentleman who had been in office since 1786, I have no time to dwell. They were not attended with any marked success. More to the purpose is his sudden growth of enthusiasm for the cathedral itself and its furniture. There is a draft of a letter to Sylvanus Urban, which I do not think was ever sent, describing the stalls in the choir. As I have said, these were of fairly late date, of about the year 1700, in fact. Quote, the archdeacon's stall, situated at the southeast end, west of the episcopal throne, now so worthily occupied by the truly excellent prelate who adorns the see of barchester is distinguished by some curious ornamentation in addition to the arms of dean west by whose efforts the whole of the internal furniture of the choir was completed 
The prayer desk is terminated at the eastern extremity by three small but remarkable statuettes in the grotesque manner. One is an exquisitely modeled figure of a cat, whose crouching posture suggests with admirable spirit the suppleness, vigilance, and craft of the redoubted adversary of the genus Moose. Opposite to this is a figure seated upon a throne and invested with the attributes of royalty. But it is no earthly monarch whom the carver has sought to portray. His feet are studiously concealed by the long robe in which he is draped. But neither the crown nor the cap which he wears suffice to hide the prick ears and curving horns which betray his Tartarian origin. And the hand which rests upon his knee is armed with talons of horrifying length and sharpness. Between these two figures stands a shape muffled in a long mantle. This might at first sight be mistaken for a monk of Friar of Orders Grey, for the head is cowled and a knotted cord depends from somewhere about the waist. A slight inspection, however, will lead to a very different conclusion. The knotted cord is quickly seen to be a halter, held by a hand all but concealed within the draperies while the sunken features and, horrid to relate, the rent flesh upon the cheekbones proclaim the king of terrors. These figures are evidently the production of no unskilled chisel. And should it chance that any of your correspondents are able to throw light upon their origin and significance, my obligations to your valued miscellany will be largely increased. End, quote. End of section thirty. The Stalls of Barchester Cathedral, Part One.